All right, today our guest speaker is Dr. Ken Himes, the Executive Director of Friends of the Family Ministries, dedicated to building healthy relationships and healthy homes throughout the Mid-Willamette Valley. He was also the pastor of adult, uh, pastor of family ministries here for 17 years, which we were talking about, we think gives him the second longest tenure of any pastor in Northwest Hills Community Church history. And if you think you know who the first one is or you're curious, you'll have to find Ken Himes afterwards and see if you're right or get the answer from him. But let's welcome Dr. Ken Himes. Okay. John, how are we doing on the sound? We doing okay? All right. Great. Thank you. Well, today, folks, I I want to speak to you from my heart. And I just really see this as a family chat because um, of my long time being here. I've been here 34 years. I came as an associate in 1977 when I was 29. I'm now 63. My kids were barely three years old and a year and a half, and they were raised here in the church. I had a little more hair in those days, a little blonder. Um, and during those 34 years, the first half of which, 17 of them, as Kurt indicated, I served as an associate pastor here. And I did pretty much everything there is to do around here except count money. And I studiously stayed away from that because pastors aren't supposed to mess with that stuff, you know, and I wanted to avoid that. I had the privilege of working under three different pastors and being in the church through the transitions that are all associated therewith. I've walked with the congregation through numerous difficulties and challenges, and for those of you who have been around a while, you know we've had at least our share, if not more. Um, Seventeen years ago, God led me to launch Friends of the Family with some other folks that uh, joined in with us, and uh, I've stayed here over the course of those 17 years and served in uh, various capacities and number of roles and still continue to do so. I see this church as my family. Uh, and my role here, even as a pastor, was never just, this is a job to do. This was a calling. I care very deeply about this congregation, and I remain very deeply committed to it. One of the things I've heard over the years of my being here is the word potential. Um, I heard Andy use it just a few weeks ago at one of our meetings. We had a meeting here about now's the time and on one Sunday night recently. I heard that word back when I was first here. Uh, I used that word many times back in the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s when I was on staff. And my dream is before I die is to see this church actually reach its full potential. To finally become all that God wants it to be. And for that to happen, it's going to take each one of us to step up to the potential that God intends for us personally. All of us need to find our ministries and all of us need to face our fears if we have fears about engaging in ministry. That's the title of my talk, Finding Our Ministries and Facing Our Fears. And I believe some of us have done that or are in the process of doing that. Many of us have. I think there's lots more of us that haven't gotten there yet. And I'm hoping today we can help you along that process. The part that I want to contribute to the process today is to help each one of you fully embrace the notion that God has blessed you with a call to ministry that is uniquely yours. Nobody else is like it. It's going to be yours. And he's equipped you to do it, and he can enable you to overcome whatever confusions or fears or 
other kinds of feelings you may have. You may think, I'm disqualified for ministry. I don't have the time, the expertise, the energy, the money. Um, you know, I've got, not got the background. Whatever it happens to be, you can, God can deal with that. And I want to help you along that path. And to do so, I want to share some of my personal journey with you. And I hope that my story will convince you and encourage you to pursue with all your heart how God wants to use you. How many of you have seen The King's Speech, the Academy Award-winning movie? Okay, quite a number of you have. Um, that's the story of King George VI, who came to the throne just about the beginning of World War II. He was called upon to rally the British nation at that point by a radio. A lot of live radio was just coming into vote, just coming into actuality in those days. But he had a huge stuttering problem. And the movie discusses that stuttering problem and documents in agonizingly clear, clear terms the struggle that he had facing up to his stuttering problem, the efforts he made to avoid having to speak in public, didn't want to be the king, all of this stuff. Takes him through, you watch him go through the whole process of speech therapy. It's a moving account of his terrors, his failures, his courage, his therapy, his eventual success at it, even though he struggled the whole way. I have to tell you, I identified with that story in a very deep and profound way because I, too, have had that struggle with stuttering. Maybe not quite as much, but plenty of times close to that. I remember as I grew up, I had fear of asking questions in class. You know, raise your hand and try to get the teacher's attention and ask, I would stutter. I was afraid of speaking up in social situations. So you're in a group of people and there's a conversation going on and I'm trying to, you know, jump in and get a word in having a hard time doing that and not stuttering. I remember in uh, junior high being mocked, as junior hires are prone to do, you know, kind of mimic you if you stutter, kind of care and do it on it to mock you. I had particular difficulty with initial vowels, so I would try studiously to find other words to use instead of a word that started with a, a vowel because that would be the where I'd get tripped up. I've died a thousand deaths over stuttering situations, and that movie really brought it out strong. I also had a deep uh, personal insecurity, partly triggered by that, partly by some other things. That deep insecurity was made even worse by life experiences. My father was institutionalized when I was three years old, paranoid schizophrenic. I remember him being hauled off to the, uh, by the police when he tore up our house when I was three years old. I can remember my mom ushering us out the front door to get away from him where she had locked him behind a bedroom door at the front of the house, and there was a big X in the door where he was trying to come through it. My mom also told me that my father took a, a vacuum cleaner hose and, threw, and pounded it through the, the crib where my brother had just been, and she had snatched my little brother away. Um, I was a last-key kid with a single mom before it was a popular thing to do. Single parents, single moms nowadays are pretty commonplace. Back in the early 50s, you just didn't hear of that. Um, I can remember being in uh, first grade and being in my little house we had in L.A. Uh, with the shades drawn the, uh, all dark because I had the measles and you're not supposed to be exposed to light. And I was home alone as a first grader. My mom was working. Nowadays, she would have been arrested for child neglect. That's how things were in those days. I came home to an empty house many times. I was one of the original latchkey kids. My mom divorced my father when I was seven years old and married a man who was from Oregon, 
whose wife had abandoned him with four children, uh, three of whom were older than myself, one slightly younger. And we left California and moved to Oregon, to Grants Pass, where he had come from. So I grew up in a step family. Uh, we moved many times between California and Oregon, up and down the coast. I lived in 15 or 16 different houses, and I attended 11 different schools before I graduated from high school. Seven of those moves were made in the middle of a school year. I remember when I was a seventh grader coming home, for example, we were living in Reading at the time with my arm loaded full of books to do my homework on a Thursday night, and I was told that we were leaving for Los Angeles in the morning. My father just lost his job, and we needed to go because we didn't have money. All during my upbringing, I never, had, never once had a deep personal conversation with either my mom or my stepdad. To deal with that insecurity, early on I discovered that I had good academic skills. I can remember when I was a third grader stepping into a classroom in Grants Pass after about a month into the school year, standing in the door looking into the classroom, seeing the backs of the heads of all the kids, and saying to myself, in a month's time I will be at the top of this class or close thereto. And that's what I did. And that's how I gained some sense of personal security, some sense of social security. It just so happened that I had some skills that were socially acceptable as a way to find security. A lot of kids figure out how to do that, how to find some way to fit in and, and, and uh, be okay with others around them. That's something they're good at. It might be sports. It might be music. It might be art. It might be clowning around. Who knows? Um, but not all of those ways are socially acceptable. Sometimes they deaden the pain through drugs or cutting themselves or promiscuous sex or, or fighting or things like that. Thankfully, I chose a path that was more socially acceptable. It's good in one sense, but it's bad in another because it's all about me and my abilities and not about being able to trust God in a deep way. Along about when I was 16, I became a Christian. That's another story. Uh, how that process happened, how God uh, used the scriptures to draw me to himself. I struggled to live a Christian life early on. The church I was involved in at the time was very legalistic, a largely legalistic culture. I was told as a new Christian that if I read my Bible, prayed, and witnessed that I would be walking the Christian life. And those are good things to do, and I do them. But there was something missing. It wasn't, wasn't adequate for me. Just, I felt something was missing, and I didn't know exactly what it was. As I began to struggle with that and, and talked with uh, a trusted friend, what I began to see that I needed a deeper relationship and not just about doing stuff. And I felt a tug toward a more relational expression of my faith, both with God and with other people. And along about the time when I was a sophomore in college, I began to feel a call into ministry. And by early in my senior year, that call was getting clearer. And that's when God and I had some chats about my stuttering and my insecurities. Lord, if you're calling me into ministry, I, have you considered this thing here? Uh, and uh, he led me to a passage in, Exodus, passage in Exodus 3 and 4, which we'll be looking at in just a moment. I share my story with you so that you can see that we who stand in front of you week by week to speak God's word to you didn't suddenly materialize out of some spiritual sphere and become pastors and teachers, or there were some sort of creature that you can't relate to. Um, we're real people with real personal issues that God, by his grace, has chosen to use for his purposes. I want you to see that the ministry does not belong to the pastors and teachers, but belongs to you. 
Anybody who names the name of Christ, has trusted him as Lord and Savior, has a ministry. And the pastors and teachers are here to equip you for that ministry. Every one of you, we're here to equip you for that. God has given you a ministry that's uniquely yours to fulfill. Pastors are not here just to do their professional thing, and you're not here just to pay the bill so you can watch them do their professional thing. You don't come to a worship service to be served worship like you go to an accounting service to be served accounting or to a laundry service to have your cleaning done. You come to a worship service to serve, to engage in ministry, to do And the pastors are here to help you accomplish that ministry. The ministry truly belongs to you, and the pastors and teachers are here to equip you, to provide you what you need so that you can make your ministry happen. To back that statement up, I want to refer you to Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 12. Ephesians 4, 11 to 12. God, it says, it was he, God, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. And here comes the purpose statement. To prepare, or another word we could use here is equip, to equip God's people, all who name his name as their Lord and Savior, to equip God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That's the complete potential realized. But to get there, the process is quite clearly declared. You're to be equipped to do the service, and it's you, the people of God, whom the pastors equip to accomplish that service. It's not up to the professionals, and we just sit back and watch. I want to share with my, my story with you and to open up Exodus 3 and 4 because at this time in our history as a congregation, I believe that God has a message for us. That's a message he's been trying for decades to get across to us in various ways, and I believe that message is this. I've called each and every one of you to find joy in serving me in ways that fit you exactly, and I've enabled you to serve no matter what your fears and inadequacies and failures may be. I invite you to step into the joy of serving me in ways that will absolutely amaze you and will make this church all I've dreamed that it could be. So would you turn with me to Exodus chapter 3 and 4, and we're going to spend some time looking at how this story unfolds, and uh, I'm going to weave a little bit of my personal story into it and tell you how God used this passage in my own life. So we're in Exodus chapter 3, beginning of verse 1. And just to give the setting here for just a moment, you'll recall the story of Moses, uh, born a baby uh, with the Egyptians, uh, oppressing the people of Israel. And uh, they were supposed to expose their children and and see them killed. And instead, Moses' parents put him in a little raft made of bulrushes, tarred and all this kind of stuff, put him out to float in the reeds along the Nile River, uh, Egyptian princess come along, hears the baby, takes the baby into herself, raises him as an Egyptian prince. He has all the learning and the special treatment and all that that goes with that whole thing. And then uh, along about the time when Moses is 40 years old, he sees an Egyptian oppressing and beating one of his Hebrew brothers, and he jumps in and kills the Egyptian, and the 
the Israelites, you think, would be appreciative of that. No, they reject him. Think, who is this guy taking over this thing? Who is he? He's just been checked out. Why is he involved here? He's got no credibility with us. And Moses fled for his life off to the backside of the desert, probably in the southern part of the Sinai Peninsula near Mount Horeb. And there we find him having gotten married, apparently has a family, and he's tending the flock of his uh, father-in-law, Jethro, and that's where the story picks up. So Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why this bush does not burn up. It's kind of boring out there in the desert. This is pretty curious, okay? So when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So, so now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And this is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. So go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt, and I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people so that when you leave, you will not go empty handed. 
Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. So then Moses answered, What if they don't believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord didn't appear to you? The Lord said to him, What's that in your hand? A staff, he replied. Throw it on the gr-. The Lord said, Throw it on the ground. So Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, Put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, it was leprous, like snow. Now put it back in your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back in his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, If they do not believe or do not believe you or pay attention to the first miraculous sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and of tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will help you speak and and will teach you what you're to say. But Moses said, Oh, Lord, please send somebody else. And then the Lord's anger burned against Moses and he said, What about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you, and his heart will be glad when he sees you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth, and I will help both of you speak and teach you what to to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so you can perform miraculous signs with it. So let's come back and just walk out this passage uh, piece by piece and see the whole story in full and, and see what God might have to say to us about it. So again, Moses is at Horeb. He's tending Jethro's sheep, and he sees this burning bush, which is one thing, but to see a burning bush not being consumed, uh, that's another. And so he's curious. And it's very interesting that God chooses something like this, a burning bush, to get Moses' attention. He's not usually quite that dramatic. He sometimes uses other kinds of means. But he did choose this particular means uh, in Moses' case. But sometimes he has other ways of trying to connect with us. Sometimes it's a, it's a nudge, just a sense that the Spirit is leading you in a particular way. Sometimes it's a sense of being drawn to something. Sometimes it's a result of careful and prayerful analysis of one's strengths and weaknesses. It could even be a sermon like this one. Whatever it is... We need to pay attention. That's an essential first step, and Moses took it. And he appeared to him, he appeared to Moses in the form of an angel. Verse 2 tells us it was the angel of the Lord, and that is an Old Testament term for the pre-incarnate Christ. And when the Lord saw that Moses had gone over to look, he called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And notice that God waited to speak to Moses until after he had his attention. Sometimes God is trying to get our attention, and we wonder how come we don't hear from him. Maybe we haven't been 
paying attention. And we need to tune in and listen. But when, he, when we do attend to God, he does speak to us, and he speaks to us in a personal way. He is a personal living God. He speaks. Idols don't speak. Higher powers don't speak. Cosmic forces don't speak. Karma doesn't speak. God speaks. He's personal. And he responds to those who attend to him, and he calls Moses by name. He's at once miraculous in the burning bush, and he's very personal, calling each one of us by name. Marvelous. Don't come any closer, God says to Moses. Take your sandals off. This is holy ground. We have a holy God. There's something different about our relationship with him that is not like the others. It's not come in and kick your shoes off, casual kind of relationship, and hang out with God. This is hallowed ground. This is a holy God. The fire being a symbol of holiness. And then God speaks to Moses and says, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God's saying, I'm a God of history. I'm eternal. And he senses now, Moses senses now he is in the presence of a holy majesty, so instinctively he hides his face in fear. But God is also compassionate. He says in verse 7 and 8, I've seen the misery of my people. I've come down to rescue them. Here's a God, holy, personal, a God who is concerned about his people, who is now poised to act on their behalf. This is the right time. So here we see some of the beauty and majesty of our God who calls us into ministry. He's a living God. He's responsive. He's personal. He's holy. He's historic. He's tender. He's concerned. I just think it's appropriate to stop for a moment and ask ourselves, how big is our God? Do we truly believe that he is capable of enabling us to do whatever he asks us to do? Or are we trapped or hindered by thinking that our failures and our limitations are too much for God to use us? He can't surmount these. Just remember, Moses was a murderer. He was a man of youthful privilege, reduced attending sheep on the backside of the desert. God still chose him. I was an insecure stutterer. God still chose me. Whatever your thing is, God's chosen you for ministry. He can enable it. So what is God directing Moses to do? Verse 10 of chapter 3. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So here's where some of us have trouble. Um, We agree that God is great and has all these wonderful qualities. Intellectually, we can be there real easily. But when God chooses us for his purposes, when he calls us to do something scary, something bigger than we could possibly conceive, we have a harder time with that. We may try to wiggle out of it. It's just too cotton pick and scary. And I can recall 17 years ago when the Lord was pushing me and some others to join together to launch Friends of the Family Ministries. Very reluctant to do so. I'm not a risk taker. I'm not a fundraiser. Remember, I try to stay away from money. I'm a world-class worrier. These are not things you want to be if you are trying to start something on blue sky with nothing out there. But God was telling me to do it. And so he pushed me into it, and I reluctantly obeyed. And uh, here I am 17 years later, still trusting God day to day. Uh, but I tell you, he's, dealt with, he's dealing with and has dealt with many of those same issues to teach me about trusting him in some deep ways. You may be someone who is being asked to help with a ministry in a church. You may have a dream about doing something in the community. You've wondered if it could happen. You may live somewhere else and seen something done that caught your interest, and you wonder what it would be like to do it here. 
it's not just limited to what happens here in this congregation. It's what's happening. What is the kingdom of God doing in this community? What, what part do we need to be playing? Can we be creative and do fresh things? What about overseas? Uh, we're blessed. Two, our two daughters uh, either have been or are currently involved in overseas missions. Uh, Melissa is another example that it can happen. People can grow up out of here and be involved in overseas work. You might be another one of those. There's a lot of beautiful opportunities out there. So you may have a dream for ministry that you've never really explored, and you need to do what you need to do to explore it and maybe take it on. We don't know where that would be, where that would take you. So Moses, being called like that, tried to wiggle out of it. And he has now a series of five objections. This is the uh, through chapter, rest of chapter 3 into chapter 4. This is the litany of a man who is preoccupied with his own fears and inadequacies. And as a result, he is resistant to change and to obey. His focus is inward, not Godward. I believe that often our unfaced fears teach us to avoid, uh, to, are often our unfaced fears lead to an unwilling heart. We let our fears control us, and so we disobey. Many of us parlay our low self-images into excuses like the one Moses makes. I know I've certainly done that. I've, done, I've said no to some things because I was afraid I'd fail at them. I remember a guy who's, who's finding his worth and his self-security uh, in his own performance doesn't want to risk failure because that would only make things worse inside. That's easy to do. But I've learned more and more by God's grace to base my life on the truth about, of God about himself and less and less on my fears of myself. Romans 8 tells me that God's love for me is unconditional and I can never be separated from it. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10 tells me that God's power is perfected in my weakness so I can glory in my weakness because the power of God rests upon me. Those are passages that have been meaningful in my life in many ways. And as we examine each of the excuses that we're going to go through here now, these five excuses, I want you to ask yourself, do I sound like Moses here? Have I ever said this to God, maybe, maybe not out loud, but, but quietly or subconsciously? What does, God, what does God's response to each of Moses' excuses have to say to me about any excuse that I may have made or may be making? And so Moses' first excuse, chapter 3, verse 11, who am I to go to Pharaoh? And I believe who am I is a question that preoccupies our age of self-centeredness and self-esteem. We live in anything but a God-centered world. We're focused on ourselves entirely too much. It's all about what we're comfortable with or what we think will make us happy. And I believe, sadly, we Christians have become overly influenced by such thinking. We think that overcoming our low self-esteem is our basic need and that God exists to help us do that. We're more concerned about developing self-confidence than we are God-confidence. I believe we need to be more preoccupied with who God is and less worried about who we are. We need to develop confidence in God. And so then, as Paul said in Romans 12:3, we will think of ourselves with sober judgment. We will see ourselves from God's perspective, not from our own. And I want you to notice God's answer to Moses' question about who am I. God says, I will be with you. Very interesting answer. He doesn't answer Moses' question directly asks, okay, Moses, let me tell you who you are. You know, he doesn't go there. He says, my response is, I'll be with you. Moses, it doesn't matter who you are. What matters is, I will be with you. That's what counts. In effect, that's what God's trying to get across to us. God does not call us to something without also giving us his presence. Hebrews 12.5 tells us that I will never leave you or forsake you. Ain't going to happen. 
Matthew 28, 20 tells us, giving the Great Commission, I will be with you always to the end of the age. Whatever God's called us to, he's with us. So we don't have any need to chicken out when God calls us to a task that is bigger than we are. God is bigger than the task, and he will be with you. And I've certainly found that repeatedly true over 17 years of founding and leading a small nonprofit organization. There's been many times I've come close to despairing about our survival, but God has always shown the way forward. The sign of God's presence is interesting here, too. And it's a future thing. God says, I'll be with you. And when you come out, after you've done all I've told you to do here, you're going to worship me on this mountain. So the reassurance, the, the sign, the, the certification of God's presence with him is a future thing. And Moses is going to have to trust God, taking him at his word to the point where that confirmation occurs. You see the, 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 the beauty of God's strategy here in terms of teaching Moses about trusting God no matter, and not being concerned about himself. Okay, so then Moses still, he's not done with the excuses yet here. Here comes the second one. Moses says, okay, you'll be with me, but, but who are you? And the request for a name in the scripture is not just a request for a label like Ken or somebody. It's a request for identity and for assurance. In Old Testament culture, if you know someone's name, you know who they are, and therefore you have some assurance about how they will act in the relationship. And God answers Moses, I am who I am. And this answer is based on the Hebrew word for, for to be. It's called hayah. And it's basically saying that God did not come to be. He was, he is, and he will be. He is the I am, the continually present, faithful in the past, faithful in the present, faithful in the future. And I want to unpack this just a little bit more. Notice uh, when he says, I am, God is personal. God is not an it. He's not an abstract principle. He's not a philosophical concept. He's not an idol. He is an I. He has personal identity. I am. God is free. He's not limited by any other. His being is not contingent on anything. He has no beginning. He has no end. He owes his existence to no one but himself. And then he says, I am who I am. God is unique. There is no one like God. He does not define himself in terms of anything else. Isaiah 46, 9 says, I am God. There is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. So are you helped uh, because God defines, him, defines himself as the I am who I am? And if not, I invite you to think a little further. What else could he say that would make it clear that he's not restricted by human limitations? If he compares himself to something else, then he's not fully God. He, he communicates by this, I am who I am, that he is uniquely positioned to do and to empower what none of us can conceive of or accomplish on our own. He must describe himself as the I am who I am. Anything else would make him less than God. Okay, that's the second excuse responded to. The third, Moses says, what if they don't believe me? Now, Moses, you remember, uh, was, had fled Egypt because he had murdered an Egyptian and the Hebrews knew it. And they hardly thought of him as someone to rescue them because he'd been out, he hadn't really experienced all that they'd experienced. Very likely, he had still, still had a significant credibility problem with the Hebrews. Probably regarded as an arrogant, privileged fugitive who had avoided them for 40 years. And what right did he have to leave them? So God gives him three signs. The leprous hand 
the rod, the leper's hand, and the water to blood. So God clearly demonstrates who he is through these miracles. And how many of us can't see God working? Or we forget easily that he worked in our lives or in the lives of others. Or we discount his working as coincidence or as something that can be explained otherwise. We need to notice that God is doing miracles still and to recognize that God is at work. He's the same God he was back in the backside of the desert talking to Moses as he is today. That's the third excuse responded to. And the fourth one is, Moses says, I've never been eloquent. In the past, nor since you've spoken to me, I'm slow of speech and of tongue. This was my big objection. God, you know I can't speak well. You know I have a stuttering problem. You know my insecurities. Are you sure you've thought about this? You got the right guy here? You know? So we had quite a number of conversations along this line, and this is the point that began to get through to me. But listen to what Moses, listen to what um, God has to say. Says, well, Moses says to God, God, you know I can't speak well, and you're talking to me now hasn't changed that, which implies a criticism of God. Talking to me now hasn't fixed it, God. I'm still the mess that I was. But listen to what Stephen said about Moses in Acts 7.22. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. And Stephen said that of Moses when Moses was only 40 years old. 40 years before the whole scene we have here in the desert. So apparently Moses did not see himself as God saw him. Perhaps Moses' fears blocked his ability to hear God. I wonder. And so God confronted me with the following truth in response. He says, God says, who made your mouth? Who made you to stutter? Who made you with these insecurities? Who took you through life the way he's taken you so far? So when God confronted me with that, asked me to speak for him, I had to believe that he made me able to do so. And so I had to yield to it. And I just want to say to you, whatever your objection, whatever your pains in your past, whatever deficiencies you may have, do you understand that God sovereignly intends them for his glory? I don't say that cheaply. That he has enabled you to glorify him in your weakness, that he is truly sufficient. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, God tells us that his power is made perfect or complete in our weakness. Therefore, glory in weakness that the power of God may rest on you. How I've clung to that. And I challenge you to do the same. And so we come to the fifth excuse, which really gets to the bottom line of this whole thing, I think. Moses says, please send somebody else. You know, you got the wrong guy. I think we have a misunderstanding here. Uh, Are you sure? You know, and this is the root problem. That Moses is not willing to trust that God is all he reveals himself to be Moses chose to let his fears run the show, and so he willfully resists obeying God. I believe there are two basic foundations to life, truth and fear, and we choose which one we will base our lives on with each decision we make every day. At this moment, Moses chose to base his life on fear and not on truth. And I invite you to consider which is it for you. Which way are you going to go? Is it fear or truth? So to overcome my fear of public speaking, I chose truth daily, moment by moment, in spite of my sometimes overwhelming fear of stuttering. 
I took extra preaching classes in seminary. At first, I fell apart. One time, I sobbed during a private coaching session with my instructor. Later, I began to manuscript my sermons, and I practiced them and then read them. I read a book called Stuttering Solved and put into practice the techniques I was learning there. And I still have brief blips of stuttering from time to time, but I'm here to tell you that God has been faithful to enable me to do what he called me to do. And I'm here to challenge you that if he can enable me and Moses and lots of folks since and beyond, he can certainly enable you. And so Moses had kind of pushed God to the edge here, and and God's anger waxed against Moses. And God said, okay, Moses, we'll settle for second best. I'll give you Aaron. God had to permit Moses his second best, to lean on Aaron instead of leaning totally on God. And I just want to encourage you, let's not settle for second best. Let's not risk God being upset with us. Let's base our lives on truth and not on fears. So when God calls you to serve him, whether you're at home, in the neighborhood, at work, in the community, in the body of believers, I encourage you to be ready to trust him and to obey. Don't be full of rationalizations or excuses. Don't stir God's anger and make him settle for second best. Build your life on the truth of the I am, not on the fears of who am I. So I invite you to listen to God's calling in your life, to hear how he wants you to, wants to use you in your day-to-day activities, your home, your marriage, your work, your church, the community, the world. I encourage you to say, yes, Lord, no more excuses. I'll do what you want. I'll trust you, the I am, to enable me to do it. And if you don't know what your ministry is, or you wonder how to sort this all out, or you feel like you're in a ministry that you're not sure is fit for you, or you just like to discover what are the options, Whatever your concern or interest is in facing up to those issues, whatever you need to be fully equipped, I encourage you to talk with one of the pastors. In fact, you could take one of the communication cards this morning, jot a note and say, I'd love to meet with one of the pastors and talk about what's, what's my ministry supposed to be or what, where could I fit in better or what's available out there in the community that I might be able to do or could I, I have an idea I'd like to try for ministry. What, what would it take for me to be equipped to do that? Put that up, and I, I think it'd be a wonderful thing to have the pastors booked out for weeks, if not months, trying to handle all the appointments that would come in. I think it'd be a wonderful problem, I'm sure they'd welcome it. <clears throat> so I just wanted you to use, make use of those cards, pray this through, talk to God, see what he has to say to you, but listen to his voice speaking to you and respond appropriately. I've got lots of ideas about how to help you find your ministry and face your fears, and I'd love to chat with you about today's message or answer any questions you might have, respond with any comments, and I'll be down front afterwards, and uh, I'd just like to close in prayer at this point. Father in heaven, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for your word that speaks to us afresh. Thank you for the way you have walked through uh, Moses' life and brought him to a place of obedience to you. Thank you for the way you've used that passage in my own life, and I just pray that you will use this message as your sovereign spirit would see fit to reach into the lives of other people, to help each one of us realize the full potential you have for us in ministry, to find the joy of serving you fully and totally, to see this congregation and this community walk with you and be transformed because we're all doing the part that you've called us to be. Um, So, Lord, thank you for your sufficiency. Thank you for your word. 
Thank you for your spirit who empowers it all. In Christ we pray. Amen.